So, <clears throat> where did we leave off at? <laughs> In between. I think we're we're right around verse seventeen, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, Ananias and Sapphira were uh, excised from the church. Everyone came to great fear, the church and everyone who heard. And yet, even after that, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all of one accord in Solomon's porch. <clears throat> and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. And many people were healed. Everyone that came were healed. So now we hit verse 17. It's uh, chapter 5, verse 17. And we read this. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees. Remember we talked about the Sadducees? They're, they're what we would call the modern-day elite, liberal elites. They're, uh, you know, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in resurrection. They're, they're what we would call a materialist, basically. Not scientific materialism, because they didn't have, but they were materialists. They believed in what you can see, touch, hear, measure, weigh, and all that. Another thing I didn't mention was um, they were hated by the populace because they were collaborators with Rome. So the people in general viewed them like they viewed tax collectors, the Sadducees, because they bought their positions from Rome. They bent the knee to Rome. Um, they were Roman collaborators. I mean, they they were. And uh, so you had them, and you had the Pharisees, who were the the, the literalists. Um, they followed the law, but they built fences around the law, fences around the fences. So they overread the law; they overdid it. <clears throat> and then you know, we also had the Essenes. I didn't mention them before. They were a very minor minority, but they were one of the major. There were three political factions, basically: the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Essenes were the purists. They wanted to go back to the Old Testament as it was given by the prophets and follow. Of course, they were in a very large minority among the, the, the ruling elite, so they didn't hold much sway. Really, the Pharisees, I mean, the Sadducees were hold the most sway because they were backed by the Romans. But the Pharisees also held a lot of sway because they were, they were, the, they were like the populist party kind of like, right? So anyway, so this is the Sadducees, we see. <clears throat> the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy because they were supposed to be the leaders. Everybody's supposed to be over here listening to us talk, not over here at Solomon's porch listening to these fishermen. Right? They weren't mad because of what they were saying. They were mad because they were, they were jealous of all the attention they were getting. So they laid hand on the apostles and put them in a public jail. <clears throat> Scott, I'm sorry. <clears throat> but I don't have a mic on. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, 
go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. That life he's speaking of is this new life, the new life in Christ. Okay. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple and about daybreak and began to teach. So they didn't, I like that, they didn't say, well, let's, let's meet and talk about our strategy. Let's decide who we're taking with us. They just heard the command, they obeyed the command, and they went and did what the angel told them to do. Obedience, without question. We're going to talk about obedience a little more, but I just want you to notice the way they obeyed this. And what the, what the angel told them to do. Go, stand, speak. Go, stand, speak. And he gave them a specific place to do it in the temple where they had just been arrested for speaking. And so God has shown them here. Just like I took Ananias' fire out, I can preserve you. Either I can I can do I can do I can help you. They can't do anything I don't let them do. That's the lesson here. The angel said, "Man, go back to the temple and begin speaking again." They can't do anything to you without God's permission. And so that that's a good uh, that's a good lesson for us. Go, stand, speak. No fright. No, don't be afraid. Don't be because if they're going to go speak after the. Sadducees just put him in jail, then we should not be afraid of their speed. It's, you know, it's somebody in our workplace. Now, I'm bad about <clears throat> this and stuff. I don't think I have any quotes for this section. What is this? Gamaliel. All right. So we talked about the waves last week. These waves of oppression that are coming on the church. But the church is not letting that stop them. So remember, we we see these events, and then we and then we see the results of what happens in the church. Good things happen, the church grows. Bad thing happens, the church grows. Many are coming to faith. Signs are being signs and wonders are being performed all throughout Jerusalem <clears throat> and the Sadducees and the forces of darkness are taking notice of, notice of this so that's why these things are starting to happen Ananias and Sapphira bringing deceitfulness into the body <clears throat> and now we find the apostles arrested again so let's see so they go back to the temple begin to teach okay this is in verse 21. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had the doors open, we found no one inside. I thought that was a neat way, way he did, God did that. He just made it seem as if everything is A-OK. -okay. They find the prison guard standing guard, doors locked, but yet the angel, it's almost like he just zapped them out of there. You know, he just removed them from that place. Um, but they were really surprised. <clears throat> 
So they returned and said, we opened up and no one was there. Now when the captain, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. And then, <laughs> this is neat. But someone came and reported them, hey man, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. And that's what I was talking about earlier about the people. First of all, they hated the Sadducees because they were Roman collaborators. They considered them to be like tax collectors. And the Christian church, this new church, had great favor with the people. Uh, we see that in a couple of places where the people found great favor with the disciples, although the leadership, you start to see this divide now between the leadership and the populace. You know, the people have no problem with what they're saying, and they're, I mean, many, many are coming to faith every day in the preaching and the teaching and the worshiping and the prayer. And God is moving and the Spirit is moving, and man, it's just people are being healed. I just, when I think about what it must have been like, it's, it's just, ah, it must be so crazy. These uh, these leaders, they don't like it. Okay, so they went and got them, but uh, they didn't do no violence to them because they're afraid of the populace, kind of like now. I mean, we're, the only reason we're not all being rounded up, put in jail right now, is because we all got guns. They're afraid of us. I'm telling you, if they had their way, they'd be putting stop to this. But uh, <clears throat> when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, Jesus. And yet, here's what he says, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood on us. So, two great statements. They have filled Jerusalem with their teaching. So, this is not a just happening just around the temple. You know, this is not a... a a little local thing. This is there. There's a lot of people living in Jerusalem right here, and they have filled Jerusalem with the teaching about Christ. Remember what I said earlier the other day. They they're like, stop telling people that we killed the Messiah. That man is not the Messiah. Our Messiah was not killed and hung on a tree to be cursed. Our Messiah is going to come and liberate us from Rome and bring in the kingdom of Israel as promised by the prophets. So they don't like that. Keep saying we killed the Messiah. Stop saying that. Stop saying this man's the Messiah. Quit talking about him and teaching in his name. Even though they, they know the miracles are happening. They've seen miracles happen. They saw a, lep, uh, a lame man who'd been lame 40 years who'd get up and walk and walk and, and it's like, you know, they don't even, I don't know how they can ignore that. But anyway, then Peter and the apostles answered, Here's what he says. We must obey God rather than men. Remember, he said that before. First time he was arrested. We must obey God rather than men. He's, they're, they're committing civil disobedience here. They're disobeying the civil authorities in favor of divine authority. We must obey God rather than men. And so then he gives this little short message. 
This is the third time we've heard Peter kind of, uh, but this is a little like a mini message. And he takes the gospel and he condenses it down to, I think, I counted, I think there's 64 words in this little, in English, in this little thing he, he says to the, to the leaders. You can say it in less than a minute. I mean, it's just a, just very, uh, very straight and to the point, very condensed. Here's, here's what, here's what he says. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He does it again. You know, he tells them, you put him to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. There's more than three men here claiming they're witnesses to this, okay? The 12 over here, although it's Peter speaking, they're all here. He says, we are witnesses of these things, and, and he adds this new, new Testament thing, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So that's a very brief little summation there he gives them. Basically, the God, he gives them the homo agia. Remember what we talked about, the homo agia? The same message ever that, that very quickly established. It was God raised up Jesus. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. He is now exalted to the right hand of God in heaven. And he is returning one day. So there it is. He says, God raised up Jesus. There's a resurrection. Whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. There's his crucifixion. And he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. There's his exaltation. He's in session right now at God's right hand. Waiting for such time as his enemies will be made his footstool, and he will return for his bride. Okay, and then he—it's like he gives—he gives an invitation to these men right there. Um, the only thing missing is, you know, James and John and Matthias in the background singing, "Just as I am," because he gives it to them right there. He's exalted him to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, these men are Israel's, Israelites, and this offer of forgiveness is extended to them as well. So he gives them a gospel presentation and, a, and an invitation at the end of it. And then he even adds on, we all 12 of us have witnessed these things. We have witnessed the in Christ, okay? We saw him in his glorified body. We saw him ascend into heaven. We witnessed it with our own eyes. He's there. We saw it happen, okay? <clears throat> so how do they respond? Do they respond with repentance? No. He does, he does not, they do not respond in repentance. He says that when they heard this, my, my version, which I have in NASB, says they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Um, my legacy says they were enraged. That's what ESB says. They were enraged. Yeah. But that word there means cut in half. 
are cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Um, and they, they wanted to kill them. Now, you know, were they really going to kill them? I don't know because they just said they were scared of the people. But they were enraged to the point where they were like, we gotta, we're going to kill them. Then this man Gamaliel stands up. And so we read this. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time so they can discuss. Let's discuss what we're going to do with these men, okay? Let's put them outside so they can't hear our discussion. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census. That's about the time when Jesus was born. Remember the census was happening? That's why Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to be counted. So Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan, for if this plan or action is of men or is being devised by men, it will be overthrown. It will be defeated. But if it is of God, you will not be able to defeat them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Exactly. So let's take a minute here. <clears throat> I got some more context, cultural context of the just the uh, the general atmosphere of Judea and Israel at this time in first century um, Judea. Okay. So there's a book called Zealot. Written by Reza Aslan. It's called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. I have a small, just a small little excerpt where he talks about Theodos and um, Judas of Galilee and many others about that what was happening in first century Israel. Okay, so just this is like two minutes. It won't take but a minute. So here it goes. It is a miracle that we know anything at all about the man called Jesus of Nazareth. The itinerant preacher wandering from village to village, clamoring about the end of the world, a band of ragged followers trailing behind, was a common sight in Jesus' time. So common, in fact, that it had become a kind of caricature among the Roman elite. In a farcical passage about just such a figure, the Greek philosopher Celsus imagines a Jewish holy man roaming the Galilean countryside, shouting to no one in particular, I am God, or the servant of God, or a divine spirit, but I am coming, for the world is already in the throes of destruction, and you will soon see me coming with the power of heaven. The first century was an era of apocalyptic expectation among the Jews of Palestine. The Roman designation for the vast tract of land encompassing modern-day Israel-Palestine, as well as large parts of Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. 
countless prophets, preachers, and messiahs tramped through the Holy Land, delivering messages of God's imminent judgment. Many of these so-called false messiahs we know by name. A few are even mentioned in the New Testament. The prophet Theudas, according to the book of Acts, had 400 disciples before Rome captured him and cut off his head. A mysterious charismatic figure known only as the Egyptian raised an army of followers in the desert, nearly all of whom were massacred by Roman troops. In 4 BCE, the year in which most scholars believe Jesus of Nazareth was born, a poor shepherd named Athronges put a diadem on his head and crowned himself king of the Jews. He and his followers were brutally cut down by a legion of soldiers. Another messianic aspirant, called simply the Samaritan, was crucified by Pontius Pilate even though he raised no army and in no way challenged Rome, an indication that the authorities, sensing the apocalyptic fever in the air, had become extremely sensitive to any hint of sedition. There was Hezekiah the bandit chief, Simon of Perea, Judas the Galilean, his grandson Menachem, Simon son of Giora, and Simon son of Kochba, all of whom declared messianic ambitions, and all of whom were killed for doing so. Add to this list the Essene sect, some of whose members lived in seclusion atop the dry plateau of Qumran, on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea, the first century Jewish revolutionary party known as the Zealots, who helped launch a bloody war against Rome, and the fearsome bandit assassins whom the Romans dubbed the Saqqarai, or the Dagger Men, and the picture that emerges of first century Palestine is of an era awash in messianic energy. It is difficult to place Jesus of Nazareth squarely within any of the known religio-political movements of his time. Alright, so there's a little cultural context, which I'm always on the lookout for because I can't help but feel like it's much harder for me to understand scripture because I don't understand the context of which scripture was written or in which it was read, the understanding that those people would have had. They're just basic preconceptions, their suppositions. So I thought that was interesting. I'm always on the lookout for that kind of stuff. So first century Palestine is awash in this messianic energy. There's all kind of people rising up saying, I'm the Messiah, all this. Okay? And so apparently all the leadership is their own edge. Any, any kind of rise up might be happening because Rome wanted peace trade and you know everything to be quiet and peaceful so anyway another now let's talk about Gamaliel <clears throat> oh Gamaliel he was a what does it say respected by all the people okay and that's true that is very true Gamaliel was a very well known uh, Pharisee we have a little bit of stuff about Gamaliel here. Alright, so much can be said about this man. But excuse me. But suffice it to say that he was among the best of the Pharisees and a man of moderation. He was the grandson of the famous Rabbi Hillel, and was so highly thought of that the Mishnah says of him, quote. Since Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence, abstinence died out at this time. 
so yes, he was he is mentioned in the Mishnah in the rabbinic writings. He was a very well known uh, teacher of the law. Um, he was the grandson of Hillel, who was a major rabbi. He was one of the most quoted. Him and Shammai, they were like two schools of rabbinical thought in first century uh, Israel. And, you know, they, they always quoted other rabbis when they were teaching, you know, in the synagogue. So that's why when Jesus spoke with such authority, it was so shocking to everybody because he's not quoting other rabbis. He's not quoting Hillel or Shammai. He's saying, this is what this means. <clears throat> and so he was the grandson of Hillel, who was one of the two major guys in in uh Judaism, okay? So he was very well respected, and he was very well, he was wise, and he was smart, and he was, so in, in Acts 22, Paul, when he's giving his testimony, he actually mentions that he he learned at the feet of Gamaliel. And um, so Gamaliel's a poor, poor person. His gift, I mean, his name actually means gift of God. El meaning God, Gamaliel, gift of God. <clears throat> So he stops them, says, put these men out, and then he, he, he lays out this case to them, okay? Now, on the surface, you know, it looks like Gamaliel is giving wise counsel. What do y'all think? Wise counsel? Kind of. Kind of, yes. For the group he's in, for sure. Yes. On the surface, it does appear to be wise counsel. I mean, we, we, we can't argue with the fact that he just saved the apostles from from being sentenced to death. So that's good. Right? He reasoned with them on a level that was reasonable with his audience. He did, but he, he's got some problems with his logic. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that. It's twofold. But he, he definitely uh was helpful. You know, he, he calmed the, the rage, they were enraged, he calmed them down, he said, Look, relax everybody. This has happened many times before. There's preachers all over. Galilee, right now, saying they're the Messiah. So everybody just relax. We don't have to take these men out and kill them and enrage all these people out here who's following them. So he makes this very rational case. And just, uh, to me, he's just being pragmatic. You know, he's got some faulty logic going on here. Because he's just heard what Peter said. This man, Jesus, has been risen from the dead and he's exalted at the right hand of, of the Father as we stand here and speak. Gamaliel just heard all this. So his response is neither good. I mean, it's neither. It's just middle ground. He's just riding the fence here. He's not accepting what Peter says. He's just he's just advocating, you know, uh, indifference. <laughs> but that's not the word I'm trying to find. But yes. Have influence without bringing all this. He's advocating for just let's just wait and see. Okay, so here, so here's, here's an interesting thing about Gamaliel. Just a little trivia for you: in the Puritan days, the early colonial, Gamaliel was a very common name among the Puritans. And we actually have a president whose name was Gamaliel. Anybody know who that was? One of our presidents. Anybody? 
No. Warren G. Hardy. He was president number 29. The G was Gamaliel. Warren Gamaliel Hardy. That's interesting. All right, so let's talk about what Gamaliel says here. We're going to talk about how real cowboys don't ride fences. Gamaliel ain't no cowboy. He's a he's a uh, he's a mishmash. He's wishy-washy. This this life is not for the wishy-washy. Not for the double-minded. No, no, no. <laughs> That's from Pilgrim's Progress. I've never watched this. It's a great movie. So. What we have here is Gamaliel <clears throat> making an argument that has some, some, some errors in his logic. Okay, So his first error is he makes a false comparison. He's comparing this Jesus to this Theodos and this Judas of Galilee. Okay, So what's the problem with that? <clears throat> Jesus is incomparable. He, he, he's not. He's, he's incomparable. That's how you say that word. He's incomparable. Um, he's the risen, he's the risen Lord. I mean, he's he's the God of the universe. He's the creator of all things, and he he upholds all things by the word of his power. So right off the bat, you got a false comparison here. Theodos and Jesus not in the same category. Okay. Yeah, I guess it's like where the people will say, "Oh, well, Jesus was such a good man and a great prophet," and that's right. You know, oh, it was so nice. Jumping ahead of me. You're jumping ahead of me, Judy. Because <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Nowadays, we have that same thing happening. Yeah. Same and thing. Yeah, he was just like. Yeah, he was just another crazy preacher. But they have the, the eyewitness of 12 men standing in front of them telling them different, and they won't accept it because they were, they were cut to the quick. The way that was explained by Dr. Dykes, let's just talk about that, where it says cut to the quick. That word in Greek means to be sawn in two, literally. It's the literal meaning of it, sawn in two. What does that mean, for them to be cut in two like that? And why is it translated as raised <coughs> and sawn? So what he explained it is anytime the gospel is presented to anybody, even today, when they hear that message, they're cut in two in their heart. Because on one hand, they hear the message and they say, yes. I want to believe this message. That's that sounds right. And on their other side, they're going, no, no, the faith of my fathers will not allow me to believe this. Or my scientific training will not allow me to believe this. This is a different worldview. My worldview I've had my whole life has been that we were evolved from a, a soup, you know, you know, you know, all these years ago, and we're just we're just evolved uh, apes, but this is different. So they're cut in two with these men between the faith of my fathers and this faith. This is what you're telling me now, and they just can't accept it. That's kind of the way Doctor Dykes explained that word, sawn in two. I would I would agree that they were torn between two decisions. One decision is if they do something to these men, kill them, they're going to have to face the mob. The other one is they really want to kill these men. Yeah. Well, they, they really want to kill them. sitting there condemning them. I think they really want to kill them. I believe they really want to kill them. Yeah, if they can I, get away with it. I don't it, know that they would be 
that it, it gives us enough information in there to say that they believed what they were being told by them. I think it's more they were, we can't kill them because of the mob, but we really want to kill them. Yes, I believe they, they so really want cowards. to kill them. It makes them cowards. Yeah, they're cowards. I'm, I'm just talking about the, this, this one word. I'm talking about this context of this one word that means yeah. to be sawn in two. Sawn in two. But uh, I believe and if not for the sovereign God of the universe, who was orchestrating all things, Peter would have been dead before even this. Oh, right. <laughs> the first arrest, that would have been to kill him. Right. And if there wouldn't have been divine forces at work bringing all this along, it was God's history. So, yeah. And I, I, I think God used Gamaliel here to stop what was happening. Yeah, so as Judy was saying, nowadays we have false comparisons all over the place. False comparisons of religions, Islam and Christianity and Buddhism, and even the prophets of these religions, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, all these are making false comparisons. Jesus is not like these other men. Um, and, I, and the religion, Christianity is not like other religions. Um, so there you go. There's just false comparisons still going on today. <clears throat> there was a symposium. <clears throat> Here's the difference. There was a symposium held at Oxford way back in like the 30s or something during the time of C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R. Tolkien and all those guys were there. And it was, a, it was a symposium on comparative religions. And they had all these learned scholarly men meeting together for like a little conference to discuss all these different world religions. And they come to Christianity and they're all discussing Christianity and they're trying to decide what is the distinct distinctives of Christianity, what makes Christianity different from all these other religions. And just so happened at that time, C.S. Lewis came walking in. He's not part of the conference. He just happened to walk in while these guys are discussing Christianity. So they say, uh, Professor Lewis, we're all discussing Christianity and what makes it uh, unique among other world religions. What do you have to say on this matter? And C.S. Lewis, without even thinking, just says, oh, that's easy, grace. All other religions are systems of works. Uh, Christianity, salvation is a gift of grace. So there you go. Bad comparison. Next, he, he makes, he uses false logic. So he makes a false comparison. He uses false logic. <clears throat> He's measuring success of this movement, or he's measuring the truthfulness of this by its success. He's just saying, hey, just sit back and wait. Time will tell if this guy is really who they say he is. That's not the way to tell truth. Truth either is true or it isn't true. So um, that's just a bad way to look at this. It's wishy-washy. Okay? He's just heard the truth given to him with an invitation to repent and be saved. And he's, yeah, we'll just be pragmatic here. Uh, that's the word that kept coming to my mind, pragmatism, which is rampant in the modern American church. And so, and then after that, he comes to a false conclusion. So he uses a false comparison with false logic. He comes to a false conclusion, which is that we can just ride the fence here and not take a stand on either side. Jesus said, 
if you're not for me, you're against me. You can't. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. My analogy is, uh, there ain't no on deck. There's no safe spot on the field here. You're either in the batter's box, which means you're you're hearing the gospel, and you're either swinging and hitting, or you're letting it, letting the strikes go by, or you're running the bases, headed for headed for glory. Okay. So Gamaliel is trying to stand in the on deck circle. What he's doing, you see, let's just stand over here in the on deck circle and wait and see what happens. We don't have to step into the batter's box and decide one way or the other right now. <clears throat> so he comes to a false conclusion that you can just ride the fence. And Jesus says, no, if you love me, you got to be willing to hate your mother and father and your brother and sister. So anyway, <clears throat> there you go. So Gamaliel, he's he's wise man. He gives them wise counsel, but it's, but it's faulty and it's pragmatic and it's, he doesn't do the church any favors here. I mean, he does the favor as he stops their execution, but he certainly doesn't do the Sadducees any favors here. So let's so let's go on and see uh, what happens. Let's just go back to 39. But if this is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, and here, this is beautiful, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name, the name of Jesus. Okay? So, just quickly, so we don't have the wrong picture in our head of what happened here. These apostles were flogged under Jewish law. Okay, so there's there's restrictions put in place here. So not to say they weren't beaten and punished, but flogging under Jewish law is not a death sentence. It's just a punishment. And there are rules in place in the in the Talmud, I think. There are certain things that have to be followed. So it's like the back must be bared, their arms have to be stretched overhead so that their muscles are taut. And they can only be struck with a living branch. So there's no whip in play here or cat and nine tails with metal in it like Jesus suffered. Because he suffered under Roman. He got a Roman flogging. This is a Jewish flogging. It's different. So it has to be with a living branch, like a tree limb, a switch, a cane, something that's something like that. And there was restriction only 40. Couldn't exceed 40 lashes. But the ironic thing is, <clears throat> you know, I told you how they put, they put uh, barriers around the law so they wouldn't get close to breaking. So the Talmud says 40 lashes, but they would only go to 39 just in case they miscounted. So they wouldn't go over. Because they didn't want to, God forbid, we should violate the Talmud. And they're, they're whipping the apostles of the risen Christ, but they don't want to break the Talmud, okay? So I just thought that was pretty ironic. I think it's ironic that they're giving corporal punishment to adults. <laughs> well, that's just, and so, that seems crazy. Let's just have in our, let's don't have in our mind what happened to Jesus here, because this is not the same thing, okay? 
Now, they were punished for their faith. They were persecuted for their faith. And this is not a small thing. Um, the word flog, it means to part the skin or to flay the skin or to de-skin someone. So, <clears throat> but they weren't allowed to use like a, a leather whip with, with nails wrapped up in it to literally peel the hide or peel the flesh off the back of the way Jesus. And Romans also had no kind of limit on the amount of strokes they could deliver. Uh, there are accounts of Roman soldiers killing people before they ever even make it to the cross, just, just flogging them to death. So they took their 39 lashes with whatever it was they hit them with. I don't know, maybe just a man. I, I imagine a good-sized stick across the back, 39, like a bat, baseball bat, across the back 39 times. That's what I imagine. Kind of switch your grandmother told you to go pick one off the tree. I don't think it's a switch. I think it's more than that. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about a stick. Yeah, a, a limb. Thumping into the flesh of your Where back. They, they have to call it cane. Oh, that, in Southeast Asia, they, they cane people. To this day, they still cane people. It's punishment. Second Corinthians 24 calls says five times I received for the Jews the 40 lashes. That's it. 39. They wouldn't go to 40 in case they miscounted. That's how they would build laws. It's like the, like you can't walk but a certain distance on the Sabbath. Well, they would Right before the Sabbath started, they would walk half a mile and put a piece of item, an item from their house <coughs> there, a shoe or something. And they could say, this is my house. So now I can walk another half mile. And then they'd have another item list sitting there. Oh, I'm at my house, so I can walk another half mile. Ain't that crazy? It's crazy. Anyway, that's kind of, I mean, we do the same way. We do crazy stuff. We How disobey. How judge half a mile? I, it's just, that was a Sabbath walk. It was about a half a mile. That's how far they could walk on a Sabbath. Yeah, how, from your house, you could go. How do you think? Because surveys you. Surveys you. I don't think they were measuring this off with a, with a no, line, no. but just walk a step. They, they, they knew about how many steps was a, was a half mile. <laughs> so they just figured what. You can go a half mile from your house. <laughs> so let's look at their response to this beating. Where am I at? Chapter 6. Or 42. Chapter 5. <clears throat> 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Well, that's a that's a picture, huh? Just took 49 lashes to the back and you're rejoicing. Well, we can we can really take a lesson from that. Our, our I don't I don't think we we complain a bit a bit much. And then the response. And every day in the temple and from house to house, notice that corporate and small group. We you know that's a pattern for us to this very day. Corporate worship and small groups. If you're not if we're not fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in this body, away from this building, we're missing out. We're missing out. We should all have groups that we are intimate with. We are known. <coughs> others are known to us. We know each other's struggles. We know each other's joys. We can lean on one another. We can counsel one another. We can admonish one another. That's what we're supposed to be doing. 
And that's what they all, every time it mentions it, it's corporate, it's a temple, and house to house, breaking bread together. <clears throat> and what did they do? They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were hindered not at all. So that's a good, that's a good lesson for us. So here's the summation out of, uh, from our kids at the end of this section here. So quote, we flatter ourselves if we imagine we in America have known anything like the oppression they knew. But we also make a mistake if we imagine we are immune. We do face waves of oppression, though they are more subtle. Sometimes, listen to this, sometimes we do not even know they have overwhelmed us. But the enemy knows and he celebrates because we no longer speak and teach all the words of this life. When we are in such a state, the world does not see the glory of men and women fully alive. Our disobedience has cut us off from the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no joy and no buoyancy. In such times, we need to be set free and know again the liberty God has given to his children. When we take our stand for him, speak the message of life, obeying him rather than men, we will feel the waves, but we will also feel his pleasure. Our gracious Lord, the supreme example of these men as wave upon wave of oppression came upon them as they surfaced each time as they obeyed your command to speak, as they determined to obey God rather than men, as they rejoiced in their suffering is all beyond us, for it is supernatural. God, we pray that you would teach us how to live out our faith amidst oppression, however it may come, to be buoyant and joyous and effervescent for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, he likes that word effervescent. He uses it a lot in his, in his commentary. <clears throat> but he does such good summer, sum, summations of these sections that I just can't word it the way he does. So where, where are we at? Woo, 1023. Boy, that flies by. How about we start meeting at 830 where we can get two hours every Sunday? All in favor? 830, 830, yeah. All right, 930 it is. Thank y'all for, for listening. <laughs>